Hello, friends and colleagues, and welcome to episode 62 of Dermosphere, the podcast by dermatologists, for dermatologists, and for the dermatologically curious. I am one of your hosts. My name is Luke Johnson. I'm a pediatric dermatologist and a general dermatologist with the University of Utah. And joining me, of course, is... This is Michelle Tarbox. I'm an associate professor of dermatology and dermatopathology at Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center in beautiful, sunny Lubbock, Texas. The good news is that I've gotten over COVID and I seem to be just fine now. And thank God none of the rest of my family got it. But the bad news is I seem to have picked up some other bug. So my voice maybe sounds a little weird. Uh, but then back to the good news. We've got a special guest joining us today. This is Dr. John Ho. Dr. Ho, thanks so much for joining us. Do you want to start by introducing yourself? Yeah, sure. So hello, everybody. Hello, uh, Dermosphere Universe. Uh, <laughs> Dr. John Ho. Um, I'm uh, the director of Dermpath at uh, UPMC in Pittsburgh. Which coincidentally is where I went to medical school and how you and I first met. That's right. We were on the scope, and I always tell the story um, of uh, of you rotating through, and you're the only one that was published in the Dungeons and Dragons uh, <laughs> space uh, that has ever come through here. So I, I tell that story every year. And and actually, right now we have a rotator, a med student who is an avid Dungeons and Dragons player, and I showed her your book. Um, hopefully, you got another tick up on your Amazon sales. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. And I remember you fondly because you introduced me to podcasts. This was probably nine years ago. And uh, we were sitting around the scope and you were like, hey, do you guys listen to podcasts? The one I really like is Freakonomics. And I basically have been listening to every episode ever since then. And becoming a podcast enthusiast is one reason why we are making this show. And I yeah. mentioned you a couple episodes ago, which is uh, you said somebody told somebody told somebody told you that I had mentioned you. So here we are, full circle. I know, totally a full circle. I'd always wondered uh, what, what became of you, and I lost track of you after uh, Texas Tech. And, and uh, you know, on Facebook, I, you know, I, I think I saw that you had a, a baby, but it sounds like you have two now. Um, That's true, so, spreading uh, germs around. <laughs> <laughs> well, I always knew that you were going to be the future of dermatopathology education, so I didn't wonder too much. I just figured that's what was going to happen. And it sounds like I was right. So do you want to start by telling us about uh, this project? I don't want to mispronounce the name, so I'll let you pronounce it for me. Yeah, so it's called Kiko, and and there's a funny story about how we ended up naming the company Kiko, uh, but it stands for uh, Knowledge In, Knowledge Out. And uh, so I'll start with a little story. You know, I trained at a very, very small place, uh, two residents per year. And uh, we were very, I don't want to say knowledge poor because I don't want to insult my attendings. But, uh, you know, the cases that came through, um, you know, there's there a lot of bread and butter, but the rare stuff, the really cool stuff, uh, we, 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 we were like, um, you know, the guys that are warming their hands uh, you know, uh, outside and, and you got the, the wood burning in the, in the barrels, like we're just, you know, huddled together waiting for good cases. And then every, every now and then a good case would come and we would all just kind of flock around it. And, uh, so then I, I, I made the jump to academics, you know, where I did my fellowship and it was like the pearly gates open, you know, we had a hundred <laughs> pathologists here, uh, guys only, you know, there were the, like, like four people who only did derm path and, you know, five people who only did neuropath. 
And everybody had their own uh, research projects. Everybody had this incredible library of cases and all, you know, the constant great cases that would come in through the door, you know, just that day uh, was just crazy. And, and, you know, a lot of learning in medicine is just clinical experience. You just got to see more and learn from 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 your uh, your attendings and your mentors. And, uh, you know, and, and all of us, you know, in 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 private practice and in academia, we, we just want to make each other better. But why, you know, I was like, why do we have to keep everybody siloed? Uh, you know, everybody wants to show everybody everything. Everybody wants everybody to not make mistakes. Uh, you know, how, how can we democratize all this knowledge here? Um, and so this had been bothering me uh, for years and years and years. I finally got off my butt and, and wanted to do something about it. So the idea behind Kiko is to try to Try to democratize not just the not you know the content but the people you know the people who want to share all this stuff. If you, even if it's just a little tip, like man, I saw this. You do not want to make this mistake. Uh, you know, even you know, in uh, maybe there's even more informal stuff rather than formal stuff. So that's why we call it knowledge in, knowledge out. Is because we want uh, you know everybody has something to contribute and everybody has something to gain, uh, and it's these interpersonal relationships. Um, you know, uh, I, as an aside, like my wife says, doctor parties are so boring because all you guys talk about is work. But we love talking <laughs> about work. You know, we love exchanging these things, uh, you know, how to make our practice, you know, just incrementally better, you know, how to catch the next diagnosis. So right. uh, that's the spirit behind uh, Kiko is just, you know, just a place for doctors to connect. I think that uh, we had a bunch of obviously doctor friends and med student friends when we were in med school. And one of them was married to a lawyer, and I think he played a little game with himself where he just counted the minutes until somebody said vulva. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of my friends went into OB-GYN. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so if you are interested, uh, listeners, in exploring this Kiko, don't accidentally go to Gigo. That's garbage in, garbage out. No <laughs> uh, but Kiko, just K-I-K-O dot com, right? And it's supposed to be a social media platform for physicians. Yeah, so it's actually KikoXP.com. So this is kind of a nod to gaming where you earn experience points. I got experience um, so, points for signing up. It was so cool. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we, we, we gamify the whole system, uh, and your KikoXP score is based on how much your peers like your stuff also. You know, if you publish a paper, you get points. If you're first author, last author, you get points. Uh, and if you make a post and it goes viral, you know, you get a lot of points too. Um, but uh, it's KikoXP.com. Um, and one of the reasons is because, uh, we, we couldn't get Kiko.com. That's a, co a Japanese cosmetic company. So, <laughs> uh, unless you want to buy cosmetics from Japan, uh, then you go to KikoXP.com. And if our listeners go to KikoXP.com and sign up, what, what can they expect? What kind of experience? Not just experience points, but experience. Yeah, so uh, so we have a lot of doctors on there. You know, mainly it's dermatopathologists right now, and all 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 different dermatopathologists share uh, their cases. You know, sometimes they're quick cases. Sometimes they just have a clinical picture and say, "Hey, what is this?" Sometimes people say, "Hey, this is a really cool case." Sometimes uh, we'll share, you know, an article um, that's uh, that's interesting. Uh, there was an agglomerated spitz that got treated with a crizotinib. Results. I, I can never say these biologics. Um, <laughs> I think there must be a gene for people who can pronounce these things and people who can't pronounce it. Uh, that sounds like a product. Uh, but I thought that was really cool. I posted it and I, and I posted your 
um, podcast on uh, PlayStation Thumb and and uh, the author was a periorbital darkening. Uh, I saw that. Thank you. And uh, another one I posted uh, re- recently was um, pigeons who were making diagnoses. Uh, so they trained pigeons that, you know, they would show pigeons a picture of a breast cancer and they could either peck, you know, malignant or benign. I mean, they didn't, they didn't know it was malignant or benign, but they got trained and four pigeons together was as good as a pathologist had like, <laughs> they so, probably uh, uh, have lower salaries too. Oh my uh, God. Well, it depends if you're the pigeon, you don't want to get paid in dollars. You want to get paid in pellets or whatever. Yeah. Good bird seed. Good Lord. <laughs> And just to be clear, this is a free service, so people signing up don't have to. Absolutely, pay yeah. We 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 want to democratize knowledge. We don't want to put it behind a paywall. That's awesome. So I also remember when we used to hang out you know, for my two week rotation. I guess you made an impression on me that we also talked about kind of the future of dermatopathology. You were in the process of digitizing slides, which seems to have come a significant way in the last nine or ten years since I was there in your lab. Is that something you're still interested in? I would be interested in both of your takes on the future of dermatopathology. Yeah, so that's a major part of our of the Kiko platform is that uh, you can share the digital slides. So uh, either you can send them to us to be scanned, uh, or you can upload themselves if uh, upload them yourselves if you have a scanner. Um, so we want to make it really easy to share uh, digital slides because it's hard to get the context of the case when you're just looking at an image. So we want you to be able to spend some time with it if you want to, you know, go on high power, uh, zip around. Um, so we want to, we want to democratize, you know, we, we, we don't make a whole lot of money on the scanning, uh, or the storage. Uh, uh, we try to drive the cost down as, as much as possible. Um, but, uh, we're, we're looking to democratize that technology and in our own sign out area. Now we have our own, um, high, you know, high throughput, high quality, digital slide scanner. So the fellows and the attendings here, they just walk on in and throw their slides in the scanner and then um, um, put, you know, save their, save their images wherever they want to. So we're, we're really deep into uh, both the educational side of whole slide images and uh, um, we're, we're doing our first kind of artificial intelligence studies on whole slide images. So still doing a lot of that for sure. So really Kiko has a big library of these digital dermatopathology that learners can go explore? Yeah, so uh, we are not a, a content-based platform. We're a, uh, I guess, creator-based, you know, person-based platform. So, you know, I believe that all content comes from people. And, and um, you know, we, we, we always ask when we see a diagnosis, well, who made that diagnosis, you know? And if, if it's somebody that we trust, then we'll believe it. If it's not somebody that we know, then, you know, we may not. But uh, so, so we, we want to center around the individual person, the individu- individual doctor. So you can go to different doctors and see what kind of content they have, but you can also search for topic and things like that. So it's, it's like Reddit. It's a self-curating platform. Things that you put out there that get upvoted, you know, mo- a, lot, a lot more people will see. Popular content uh, you'll be able to see. So... Uh, we've pulled in, we feel like we've learned a lot from other social media networks and we've tried to pull in the good stuff and not pull in the bad stuff. That's awesome. So is the future of dermatopathology, like everything's digitized and AI helps you guys with difficult cases? So, uh, you know, 
adoption has to happen if there's a good reason for people to adopt it. So, um, you know, like Elon Musk says, you know, electric cars are known to be slow and can't do a whole lot uh, and uh, take a long time to charge. Um, you know, he's like, we got to destroy all that. If we want electric vehicle adoption to happen, they got to be faster. They got to fit more people. You got to be able to charge them fast and, you, and they have to be cheaper. So uh, that is coming with digital pathology. You know, all these AI tools that we have, uh, those will be the things that people will be like, you know what, I can't do that, uh, you know, with traditional glass slides. Uh, so uh, this is going to give me an advantage. It's going to give me another tool in my pocket that I can use to make better diagnosis from a practice standpoint. And as far as uh, teaching, uh, you know, now you don't have to, you know, collect teaching slides. You know, you can, you can, you can have them all in your digital collection and, and with platforms like this, you can access them instantly, you know, wherever you are around the world. And more importantly, you can share them with other people. Um, you know, I, I always felt like looking at cases together, like I could never be in practice by, by myself. You know, I'm an introvert you know, in the real world, but, in, in, you know, around the scope, I'm kind of an extrovert, probably. Uh, I see sharing cases as like sharing, you know, breaking bread together, like we're having a meal, you know, we joke around, and we look at these cases. And whenever you have this really awesome case, you're like, Oh, my God, you know, uh, I can't believe I'm seeing this and you want everybody else to see it. And so I think there's a very social aspect to uh, sharing cases. And, and when you just have a glass slide, and you go to a conference, you're like, hey, I saw one of these great cases. And they're like, oh, yeah. And then that's the end of the conversation. So now uh, we can uh, share it amongst everybody. So we lost John for a sec. I think uh, at his height of passion, the internet must have cut out. <laughs> Probably some sensor in the computer system there. Um, but it sounds great. I love what you're doing with the future of uh, education and with dermatopathology. We've probably taken up enough of your time, but is there anything else you want to talk about or mention while we've got you here? No, I mean, I just want to stay connected to you guys. Uh, I'd love to see your cases and I'd, I'd love to see uh, how, if you guys enjoy our cases. And uh, um, we do do live streams also. Uh, in fact, we're having, you know, we have one tonight. Uh, we have one every Thursday evening, um, and we'd love to have you on, uh, both of you, uh, you know, in whatever capacity you want. Uh, we do these, you know what a Kahoot is? Yeah, I love Kahoot. Yeah, so a Kahoot, uh, you, you might, you know, since you have two young kids, um, you might uh, start start entering the Kahoot world. The Kahoot was, I think, designed for elementary students to, to uh, it, it's, it's like a quiz. It's like a live quiz thing. And uh, you can punch in your answers, um, you know, square, rectangle, you know. And so what we do is we put out digital slides ahead of time and then we live stream um, at five o'clock and then we just pimp everybody on these questions, you know, boards type questions for derm residents and path residents. And uh, we do it in a Kahoot format so that uh, people can click in uh, the answers. And we do, you know, maybe 40 questions per the hour. And we, and, you know, we run through the slides too. So. Every every Thursday evening at five o'clock uh, this year, we went through. We're going through the entire Derm Path curriculum. Wow! You know, A to Z. Uh, so we've had uh, I think four so far, and it's me and my fellow. So it's very conversational. Uh, we talk about stuff that's uh, not related to medicine. Um, 
you know, by the time this one comes out, uh, the answers will be out. So uh, I don't feel bad about giving one of the answers. You know, we, 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 we ask about if anybody knows what the Pantone color of the year this year is. So, uh, <laughs> oh, I, yeah. I have no idea. That's exciting. I don't even know what yeah, that means. Yeah, I, just, I, I don't even know what I, that I means. Just, what is a Pantone color? I think it's a so, meat company. So it's like the Oscars of for designers. That's awesome. So, so the Pantone Color Institute, um, they look every year, uh, they do all this research on what are the what are the up and coming colors. You know what's trendy and what what does it mean. And so, uh, this year the Pantone Color of the Year is uh, Illumination and Ultimate Gray. And oh. Illumination is a bright and and cheerful and and. I guess, illuminating color and contrasted with gray, which is like a foundational solid type of a color. So the two colors together, I think the Pantone color of the year. And there's like a big announcement every year. And I think it happens in December. So we're coming up on the the, the Pantone color of the years for 2022. Exciting. That is super. I mean, only rivaled in excitement by the Dermies, the Dermosphere Awards for some of our most favorite articles and things like that. Um, So you are in Pittsburgh, right? So that's right. Luke, you know that time zones are my personal kryptonite, but I'm going to try. So that's going to be Eastern time zone. That's Eastern time zone. And so yeah. that's one hour ahead of Central. So that's 4 p.m. Right. your time, Michelle, and 3 p.m. Yeah, here in the Mountain West, and 2 p.m. for our listeners on the Pacific Coast. And if you live <laughs> somewhere else, then you, you got to figure it out yourself. So dermatology has the uh, allergen or allergic. Yeah, the mm-hmm. allergen of the year, right? Yep. And that's yeah. how we got to the Pantone color of the year is because uh, we ask what the allergen of the year this this year, and then I ask what the Pantone color of the year is. That's well, so cool. thanks so much for joining us, Dr. Ho. If people are interested in learning more about you or your work, it sounds like they can go to KikoXP.com anywhere else or social media, any place you want to tell people to find you? Uh, so... Uh, yeah, we're on uh, Twitter. Uh, uh, there's various Facebook groups. Uh, we do have an app, uh, but we're we're completely redoing the app. It should be out by the end of the year. Okay. Awesome. Well, we'll see you around. Thank you very much, and great to reconnect with you. Thank you. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. Take care. That was so much fun. I'm so excited to have him on the show, and I'm excited to be a new Kiko user with 360 experience points. How exciting! Yeah, (laughs) we'll see if we can join him for one of his live streams, and maybe we'll turn the whole thing into like a bonus podcast or something. So we can be like doing the crossover stuff, like Dixon Santana and having all the... Is Dixon Santana? Nope, that's not the... Carlos Santana. Dixon Santana is a lovely um, vascular surgeon that I work with, who is also a fantastic musician. So... Speaking of musicians, I'm going to talk about now the treatment of chronic pruritus with medical marijuana. That was a long walk. Why is that speaking of musicians? But have you have you ever known any musicians? I see. Okay, it's legal so where they are, I'm sure. <laughs> so we're going to talk about the treatment of chronic pruritus with medical marijuana. Um, this is an article um, written out of JAMA Dermatology, written by Yo Kyung Ro and Sean Quatra et al. from Johns Hopkins University. And there are no conflicts of interests with this um, specific publication, so that's good. It's not sponsored um, by the marijuana just, growers of California. Yes, not, not hashtag sponsored by, yes, 
no, no special sponsors here. So as we know, chronic pruritus is a debilitating problem for a lot of our patients. It's one of my least favorite things for a patient to have because it's so much suffering for those patients. It really can be kind of torture for them. And it has a lot of different potential causes and associations, can also be very resistant to treatment and can reduce the quality of life. And so because there really still isn't a great FDA approved therapy for pruritus, a lot of treatments are used off label. And there's just not anything that's a magic bullet for it. Though, now, you might be- for stuff coming down the pipeline, it looks like interleukin 31 is sometimes considered the itch cytokine. So it might be bell worthy. I think uh, so. I think that is bell worthy. So for those of you who are new to the podcast, the bell is called the pimping bell and is supposed to highlight testable or pimpable content. And there's a drug in the works, I believe, called nemolizumab. For, that inhibits IL-31. So we might see that and might have some of our patients finding nemolizumab for their pruritus. <laughs> well, hopefully nemolizumab gets his way through the FDA approval process more smoothly than the neurokinin-1 receptor antagonists, which were hot topics a couple of years ago. But unfortunately, most of them have been not showing enough therapeutic benefit in their phase two and three trials. So I had a lot of hope for those substances. None of them have sort of cleared the hurdles of the FDA yet. So we should just toke it up. Uh, I mean, so let's talk about the report. This is the case of a um, African-American woman in her 60s with a 10-year history of chronic severe recalcitrant pruritus with associated lichen amyloidosis secondary to primary sclerosing cholangitis. So she had reasons for her itch, of course. She was at the Johns Hopkins Itch Center. That's so cool that they have an itch center. Like what an amazing thing for the patients to have access to. Um, with complaints of extreme pruritus on the trunk and bilateral extremities. And of course, she had the clinical findings of innumerable two to three millimeter hyperpigmented papules and corrugated plaques on her trunks and extremities. And biopsy was consistent with lichen amyloidosis. So this is pimpable as well. You end up with some verusiform epidermal hyperplasia, pigment incontinence, and then amorphic eosinophilic dermal deposits that would stain positively with crystal red. Uh, sorry, crystal violet and Congo red. And of course, Congo red shows that nice like apple green birefringence sorry, um, for those kind of findings. And so these were all consistent with the diagnosis of lichen amyloidosis. Her laboratory data, of course, were notable for elevated bile acids and liver enzyme levels because of that primary sclerosing cholangitis. And as a reminder, lichen amyloidosis is just you scratch so much that you dislodge these amyloid proteins in your skin. So lichen amyloidosis means you're real itchy. And the the amyloid is keratinocyte derived, so it's not immunologically mediated like some of the other amyloidoses, like nodular amyloidosis, for example, which is amyloid light chain protein. My um, one of my mentors in my dermatology residency, uh, Dr. Janelle McDonald, would teach that nodular um, nodular is my pal, and it was just cute because it helped you remember it was amyloid light chain. But it's the plasma cells that are saying they're just making all this amyloid light chain that creates nodular amyloidosis. But as Snoop Dogg would say, back to the matter at hand, ah, little reference, I like it. Um, this patient's symptoms fails to improve with multiple antipyritic therapies, including topical corticosteroids, phototherapy, oral capsaicin, doxepin, naltrexone, and even butanorphal spray, um, which was given to her by one of her, one of her physicians. So the butanorphal spray is actually a mixed opioid receptor, uh, mixed action opioid, and it acts at the kappa receptor with high affinity. It has been used for pain control. It's also been studied for the use of treatment of severe itch. In one study, it decreased itch by 35%, but it had no effect on heat pain sensitivity. It is schedule four. 
and it may work by suppressing histamine-mediated itch through the nucleus accumbens and septal nuclei. That's it's also all for butorphanol. Ding, ding, all ding. All for butorphanol, yes. It is also administered epidurally. Um, sometimes if they're giving morphine in an epidural, they give the butanorphol as well to suppress the morphine-mediated itch. So that is something that you know is a another interesting substance that could potentially treat itchy patients. But unfortunately, that was not therapeutically effective for this patient. So her primary sclerosing cholangitis was stable and was managed by her gastroenterologist. She was on cholesterol, ursodiol, and mesalamine for that, but that still didn't control her pruritus. So she was administered medical marijuana, taken two nights weekly, either by smoking the tetrahydrocannabinol 18% indica flower or in tincture from THC and cannabinol compounded in a one-to-one ratio. And that was given sublingually. So within 10 minutes after initial administration, her worst itch numeric rating scales, the WINRS, score improved from 10 out of 10 to 4 out of 10. And with continued treatment, the score with her worst itching numerical rating scale over the preceding 24-hour improved. Um, So she had consistent improvement from that 10 out of 10 itch to 4 of 10 over five months. And that was sustained at one-year follow-up. She actually then dropped even down to zero of 10 at 16 and 20 months follow-up. So she had mild sedation from the treatment, but no other adverse effects and was able to stop taking the other antipyritic medications, including topical corticosteroids, cholesterol, and butorphanol spray. She also improved her quality of life. Her DLQI score reduced from 17 to 7 at 3 months and then to 1 at 20 months. And just as a reminder, the DLQI, the Dermatology Life Quality Index score, is basically a measure for how much effect a patient's dermatologic disease has on their on their quality of life. And a higher score means that their disease is impacting their quality of life more significantly. So the DLQI is something to know about there. So it's not fully understood why there's antipyritic mechanisms of cannabinoids, but they think it probably has to do with modulation of CB1 and CB2, which are receptors for cannabinoids, and transient receptor potential catch, cation channel subfamily member V one, so TRPV1 receptors, the different cannabinoids can bind with these different receptors and THC in particular tends to bind to all three of those. Increased activity of CB1 in the central nervous system and CB1 and CB2 receptors in the peripheral system actually reduce in an increased nociceptive threshold, which is one of the ways that this medicine is also potentially useful for pain control, um, decreased neural, neuronal activation, and decreased local information, inflammation. Conversely, also cannabinoids can antagonize TRPV1, which is a known mediator of each sensitization by s- stabilizing its closed conformation. So this may um, prevent activation by other pat- pr- pruritogens, pruritogens. I like that word, pruritogens. Do you think it's pruritogens or pruritogens? I think it's pruritogens, and I'm right about that. I, I think you are probably right about that. So the, this would result in reduced transmission of itch signaling. Cannabinoids can also help maintain skin homeostasis through the production of epidermal lipids. So there's lots of different ways that potentially the cannabinoids could be beneficial. The patient, of course, didn't have significant side effects, but you do have to assess the risk and benefit of marijuana as an antipyritic therapy, especially due to its various routes of administration. Um, Cannabinoid use has also been associated with some neurocognitive impairment and diminished motor coordination. Uh, Smoked forms can also be associated with chronic bronchitis, so you have to consider the method of intake. But this is a potential treatment for chronic pruritus, and as states pass legislation allowing public medical marijuana programs, this may give another alternative to treat patients with severe recalcitrant itching. 
So cannabinoid receptors, CB1 and CB2, seem like if you activate them, they make you less itchy. And then this TRPV1, if it's active, you are more itchy. So Mm -hmm. these cannabinoids kind of inactivate it. And it might be worth knowing that there are different kinds of cannabinoids. So phytocannabinoids are from the plant, like THC, Mm -hmm. tetrahydrocannabinols from the marijuana plant. And apparently we make some of our own cannabinoids. Those are called endocannabinoids, like endogenous. And then you can just make them up, synthetic cannabinoids like dronabinol. And some of these have psychoactive properties and some don't. So in states like where I live in Utah, where recreational marijuana use is not legal, you still see all these like cannabinoid products it's because they're the non-psychoactive form so they're probably like this dronabinol thing Um, in maryland where these guys are it looks like medical marijuana is legal but recreational marijuana is not and um it's hard to do research on marijuana because uh you have to jump through all these hoops so Mm -hmm. i have some problem with it in that i feel like it's just not very well understood and there's a group of people out there who really want it to work for whatever their ailment is. And so there's like a significant placebo effect going on, I think, especially smoking it. Like you got to assume, well, I don't know what you have to assume, but if I decided I had tried a bunch of stuff for my itch and it wasn't all working and I was willing to try marijuana, I wouldn't be smoking it. Like that's bad for my lungs. Like I don't understand why uh, that's considered a medically acceptable use, but I'm an old stodgy person, I guess. (laughs) I think that administering it in a way that doesn't harm another organ system would make a lot more sense. Um, So I think that the sublingual tincture would be something that would be more, uh, I think, acceptable. And from a medical standpoint of first do no harm, you know, telling somebody to smoke something that we know can cause chronic bronchitis and depending on how it's prepared could convey pathogens into the lung like aspergillus. Um, We don't want to, you know, add another mental, another medical disorder to a patient who already has a severe medical disorder. So I think that definitely thinking about the administration, I actually had a cancer researcher at my institution and we wanted to study the ability of cannabinoids to prevent um, neuropathy induced by chemotherapy in mice. And even to give it to mice was impossible in Texas. So this is just one of those weird things where it just kind of really depends on where you live and the regulations in your local community. But it is something to think about, maybe food for thought. Perhaps they can work on a suitably administrative, minimally neurocognitively inhibiting um, cannabinoid that hits the receptors in a way that improves pruritus without causing people to be a little too goofy, man. (laughs) Would people be as accepting of that form? I'm also just imagining a bunch of white lab mice like sitting around in tie-dye shirts like with (laughs) haze around them, like asking each other for brownies. (laughs) Okay. I mean, it conjures a cute image. Moving on to something completely different. So (laughs) this next article is out of the JAD and is called Low Dose Oral Minoxidil Improves Global Hair Density and Length in Children with Loose Antigen Hair Syndrome. And this is out of Singapore. The authors include R. Jurgen and B. Boyrule. And it's a case series here. So loose antigen syndrome, I just call it loose antigen syndrome in the article, they call it loose antigen hair syndrome, is maybe autosomal dominant. It's a pediatric dermatologic disorder, so it's something that I see probably disproportionately. It usually affects girls aged two to six, and the classic patient is a little blonde girl with short, unruly hair who hasn't needed a haircut, and she's three or four years old, and her hair only reaches to like her mid-neck, and 
not to stereotype people, but it's usually her mom who's like, why doesn't my girl's hair grow any longer? And it's because she has loose antigen syndrome. And the pathogenesis is probably that there's some defective keratinization in the inner root sheath part of the hair follicle. So anybody out there remember your hair, hair anatomy, there's this thing called the inner root sheath, inner root sheath. And if it's not keratinizing properly, then the hairs are not stuck to the scalp very strongly. And so they are easily dislodged. And so the issue with loose antigen syndrome is that the hairs are dislodged from the scalp before they have a chance to grow very long. There is a related syndrome called short antigen syndrome where the growing phase, the antigen phase is the growing phase, just is short. It's not a long growing phase. And so the hair just doesn't grow very long, but it's not easily pulled out. So girls with loose antigen syndrome, their parents might report that their hair pulls out easily like when they're brushing it or something like that. And this was a retrospective review. Oh, by the way, um, this condition just gets better on its own over time. It's not dangerous. It gets better on its own. Just like molluscum, I'm a silver lining guy. So that's what I like to emphasize when I see their parents in clinic. Uh, But it usually isn't until sort of puberty that the condition corrects on its own. Uh, So this was a retrospective review, and there it looked like hair specialty clinic of eight girls, age 2 to 10, average age of 5. They all had tried topical minoxidil, and they were experiencing, um, quote, significant psychosocial distress from the hair issues. I am not sure if it's the girls themselves or, again, their parents who were experiencing this psychosocial distress, but there it is. They tried topical minoxidil, but they were treated with oral minoxidil instead. So one of the most important things I think that comes out of this article is the dosing, if you want to try this. It was about 0.01 milligrams per kilogram. So it could go up to 0.02 milligrams per kilogram. Apparently, the dose, if you are using minoxidil for cardiac issues in kids, is 0.2. So in this study, it was 20 to 10 times less than that. So 0.01 to 0.02 mix per kg. They were treated for a mean of 12 months, and they all got better. The hair was longer, it was denser, there was less shedding. Interestingly, two of these girls had a change in their hair color during treatment from Hmm. a reddish dark brown to a light brown color. Uh, They say the significance of that is unknown. Uh, I haven't seen this well studied in the medical literature, but like kids' hair color often just changes as they get older. I True. have a lot of people tell me that they used to be, you know, a blonde and now they're sort of brownish blonde and parents tell me stories like that as well. So I don't know if that's normal or related to the minoxidil, but it's kind of interesting. But both of these girls had reddish slash dark brown and it became light brown. There were no adverse events. They did monitor their cardiac function and stuff. There was uh, mild hypertrichosis on the legs in a single patient that did not impact her ability to keep taking the treatment. So that's the story, and it's nice to have something to offer these people because I know I kind of joked about it, but it is actually stressful for some people and their families that their hair isn't long like they see the other girls or they see the girls on TV. And minoxidil is well-tolerated, and it seems to work pretty well. So it's something we could actually offer these people instead of the just wait for several years, which is what I did before this. I do think it makes sense to trial topical minoxidil first. If nothing else, it shows that people are committed to treatment, even if it might not always work, but probably works sometimes. There's also a nice little pearl here about what loose antigen syndrome hair looks like under the microscope. So it 
breasts, got, you see the antigen hairs, and they have misshapen bulbs, ruffled cuticles, and an absent inner roost sheath. So you might want to look up some pictures if you expect to diagnose this microscopically. I'm going to send a picture to Luke. Uh, I'm going to send a picture to Ryan right now to put on the website. But they, they say it looks like a ruffled gym sock. I think that's a good explanation. You don't really need it. I It's a pretty good clinical diagnosis. Uh, but there it is. You can treat it with PO minoxidil if you want. Awesome. I'm sending a picture to um, Ryan to put up on the website. Oh, and I'm sorry. I said that was from the JAD. It was actually from the British Journal of Dermatology. Oh, how dare you? Just kidding. I was trying to do a British accent. It didn't work. I got it. I got it. You, you picked it up. You picked up what I was putting down. Yes. Well, so are, are we done talking about the Lewis Anderton syndrome? I don't know if I can talk anymore. My throat is so scratchy from all the wildfire smoke I outside. I know. I mean, we talked about smoking you know, marijuana. Now we're going to talk about wildfire smoke pollution and how it affects healthcare utilization for atopic dermatitis and itch. So we have a little suite of articles here out of the JAD. And we'll start, actually, the JAD and then JAMA Dermatology with the, oh, nope, I did the same thing. It is JAMA Dermatology. What is wrong with us today, Luke? So JAMA Dermatology. It's got JAD um, on the brain. I I think it's because we started out with the medical marijuana article personally. That's just blame it on It's affected us. Exactly. Contact high or something. So JAMA Dermatology, original investigation, Association of Wildfire, Air Pollution, and Healthcare Use for Atopic Dermatitis and Itch. Chief authors were Ray P. Fadau, no, Fadadu, Fadadu, I think Fadadu, um, and Maria L. Way, and this was out of the University of California, San Francisco, which is pertinent to the article because of the location of the fire they were studying. They point out that air pollution is a worldwide public health issue, and it can be exacerbated by recent wildfires. The relationship between wildfire-associated air pollution and inflammatory skin disease is heretofore unknown, so they wanted to investigate that. And look at the association between wildfire-associated air pollution and clinic visits for atopic dermatitis and itch, as well as prescribed medications for atopic dermatitis management. They did a cross-sectional series study. So they were looking at this over different time periods to assess the association of air pollution from the California campfire of November 2018. And they looked at over 8,000 dermatology clinic visits um, taken by 4,000 plus patients at an academic tertiary care hospital in San Francisco, which was only one-fifth of a mile from the wildfire source. Participants included both pediatric and adult patients who had atopic derm or itch from before, during, and after the time of the fire. So October through February of 2018 and 2019, and they compared those visits with the same time frame in 2015 and 2016 when there were no large wildfires near San Francisco to serve as their control group. They wanted to look at wildfire-associated air pollution using three metrics, the fire status, so whether it was not burning yet, currently burning, or had finished burning, concentration of particulate matter less than 2.5 micrometers in diameter, that's the PM2.5, and satellite-based smoke plume density scores. So there, may not there was this apparently big fire in California in 2018. I, I may have misheard you, but I swear I heard you say that San Francisco, or the health center, was one-fifth of a mile from the wildfire center. Uh, it, it was not that close to the fire. 175 miles from the side of the wildfire. I don't know. Oh, 175. You're right. I had circled it. And they, I did think that sounded awfully close. Um, it's just 175 down the street. Miles. Fact, uh, we lit it ourselves. Right for us. So, yeah, they were doing the study when they should have been running for their lives. No, 175 miles. Thank you for that correction. Still fairly close. I was thinking close. it seemed awfully close. But yeah, 175 miles isn't far, but it's, it's a lot better than a fifth of a mile. So I feel better now, actually. Okay. Anywho. 
Um, again, back to the matter at hand. So they wanted to look at their outcome measures. The first one was weekly clinic visit counts for atopic derm or itch as a primary outcome. The secondary outcomes were weekly numbers of topical and systemic medications prescribed for AD in adults. They looked at visits corresponding to over 4,000 patients, and they had an average age of 44.6 years. Uh, about 56% of them were female. The rates of visits for atopic derm during the campfire for pediatric patients was 1.49 with a confidence interval of 1.07 to 2.07. And for adult patients, it was 1.15 with a confidence interval of 1.02 to 1.30 times the rate for the non-fire weeks at lag zero. So basically when you compared um, the weeks that were en encompassed in this kind of burning period with the fire and the, and the period of time after that, with years previous, there was greater healthcare utilization for atopic dermatitis by almost one and a half times with a significant confidence interval for pediatric patients and by 1.15 times for adult patients with a significant confidence interval, just barely, but still significant since it didn't capture one in the confidence interval. Kudos to the San Francisco dermatology team for getting people in within a week or two. I feel like I know, there was a wildfire around here and somebody called and said, I, my atopic dermatitis is acting up because of these fires. They'll be like, well, can you wait six weeks? Yes, actually, I think I might put a plug in. If anybody wants to come work in beautiful, sunny Lubbock, Texas, we certainly could use some help because we um, love to have a, a slightly larger academic team taking care of our patients as well. So they did find that there was increased utilization, as we said. Um, they also noticed that a 10 microgram per meter uh, cubed increase in weekly mean PM 2.5 concentration was associated with a 7.7% increase in weekly pediatric itch clinic visits. And the adjusted rate ratio for prescribed systemic medications in adults during the campfire was 1.45 with a confidence interval of 1.03 to 2.05. So basically, they were able to demonstrate in this cross-sectional study that short-term exposure to air pollution due to the wildfire was associated with increased healthcare use for patients with atopic dermatitis and itch and may help us to better understand the association between poor air quality, skin health, and help guide our, our ability to counsel patients as well as meet their needs. So there's a little bit of pimpable content in the meat of this article. Um, one of the pieces of pimple, pimpable content that I think is important for all of us to understand is the way that not just you know air pollution from wildfire you know smoke, but also air pollution from multiple different things, um, you know the combustion of, of fossil fuels and all sorts of things that exacerbates a lot of diseases, respiratory, cardiovascular, neurologic, has pathways where it could also exacerbate skin disease. And one of the ways it does that is through this very interesting receptor called the aryl hydrocarbon receptor. So the aryl hydrocarbon receptor is basically an environmental sensor that helps to kind of turn on proteins and things like that in the innate immune response. And it helps integrate sort of the environmental milieu with the human response to it. It is a ligand activated transcription factor that usually exists in the cytoplasm as a protein complex with chaperone and proteins and, heat shock, and a heat shock protein. Uh, whenever it binds to its ligand, which is you know something that could be found in these um, areas of air pollution, it then kind of releases all of its chaperones and it goes to the nucleus where it then kind of binds to its specific um, DNA recognition site, which is the dioxin response element. And what that does is it upregulates some genes and it downregulates others in a pathway that activates sort of a cascade of inflammation and can even mediate um, the expression of cytochrome P450-1A1. So there's all sorts of systemic effects from the activity of this pathway. 
It also can activate phase two enzymes like glutathione S-transferase A and some oxidoreductases as well as aldehyde dehydrogenase 3, which are some things that are probably getting activated to help detoxify cells. But there's some potential ways that it could impact inflammatory pathways. And I think this might be one of the reasons that we notice patients that live in densely populated urban centers with significantly compromised air quality may have increased rates of things like atopic dermatitis and asthma. Um, what do you think about that, Luke? I think that wildfire smoke sucks. And for some reason, a lot of it gets stuck in the Salt Lake Valley. So it's been super smoky here in Salt Lake City for like the past six weeks. And it's apparently from the fires in California and Oregon, which hardly seems fair that we should get the smoke. <laughs> there were some weeks ago, we were like the worst air quality in the world, Oof. in the world. And it's because of these fires in other states that are at least two states over. Wow. I mean, I know controlling wildfires is not easy, but uh, it would be nice, and this paper helps, to recognize this as like a, a national or an international problem, not just like a regional thing. Yeah, and you know, we also have to look for innovative ways to, to find solutions for this. So one of the interesting things they brought forward in this article was, as we were discussing, that aryl hydrocarbon receptor pathway increases oxidative stress and, and some inflammation. Tapir so there's a tapinarov. Yeah, it sounds like the name of a Russian ballet dancer. But um, Tapinarov, which is a new topical aryl hydrocarbon receptor modulating agent, has shown some promise for treatment in patients with AD. So Tapinarov, the Russian ballerina, kind of scratching his little tights, perhaps, and smoking a cigarette. Maybe you can remember it that way. Um, so that might be useful for air pollution-related exacerbations of atopic dermatitis. So hopefully this promising candidate for itch and relief makes it through the slings and arrows and hurdles of FDA approval, because that would be nice to have that ability to use that. Uh, I think that they also found significantly that the most affected group in this was children. Um, so I think that children, especially if you're considering children in low-income communities who are disproportionately affected by air pollution, there is sort of a um, societal um, structure that is creating some of the worst cases of atopic dermatitis. And that was addressed in an editorial by Kenneth Kaiser, also in JAMA Derm, um, kind of responding to this article and talking about the fact that, you know, more than 90% of the world's population lives in areas that have unhealthy air and air pollution is one of the world's greatest environmental hazards to human health. So this is something that worsens disease across all organ systems. And I think we have some good evidence here as well that both long and short-term exposures to pollution can cause exacerbations and worsening of skin conditions and a linking of that, you know, air pollution and poor air quality to exacerbations of dermatitis as well as itch. And so I think that, you know, as we look towards a future where we're hopefully thinking about trying to establish a healthy and safe environment for all people, thinking about the sort of distribution of how, how pollution gets kind of controlled as well as how it gets managed is uh, an urgency for the medical community writ large. So I think that is something that we need to think about as well. Couple interesting points as well. So this is still an association. It doesn't say True. that wildfire smoke causes you to be itchy, though we know that people were itchier when there was wildfire smoke. And then there's this like aryl hydrocarbon receptor, which would offer a plausible mechanism. But the editorial interestingly points out that like psychosocial stress also makes your eczema worse, and natural disasters like a wildfire 175 miles away is a stressful event, and maybe that's why people were itchier. Also, um, there's more wildfires now, and they're worse, and it's because of climate change. 
And in episode 40, uh, we had an article about climate change and dermatology kind of arguing that dermatologists should be advocates against climate change because it does affect the health of our patients, especially our most vulnerable patients like our kids, especially our poor kids who live in more polluted areas. So uh, another call to action there um, certainly feels like the world is on fire in some senses, but I am an optimist and the world as overall is getting better, but this darn wildfire smoke outside is still driving me crazy. Not making it easier for you to get over COVID either, huh? All right. I I honestly think I I, I have a different cold. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I feel like I've got to be immune to COVID at least for a few months. So let's finish up with an article that's actually from the JAD. (laughs) We were just predicting the future, Luke. We weren't actually making mistakes. It's called Topical Cyrolimus or possibly sirolimus, don't know how to pronounce it. I'm going to call it sirolimus. Topical sirolimus therapy for nevus sebaceous and epidermal nevus, a case series. The authors include Amanda Zhu and Richard Antaya out of Yale. And sort of like my loose antigen syndrome article, this is a case series of a pediatric condition that got better with this treatment. I guess I have a bias toward pediatric dermatology. So... (laughs) Um, nevus sebaceous and epidermal nevus are both associated with active, activating mutations in the RAS pathway, RAS, it's probably bellworthy. Thank you. And uh, activating mutations in the RAS pathway lead to cell growth. So we know that there's other RAS things that cause cancer or cause syndromes that are associated with various overgrowths and tumors, both benign and malignant. Sometimes they're called RASopathies. And you can probably remember mutations in things like KRAS are associated with various types of melanoma and things. So RAS activation leads to cell growth, probably worth remembering. Cyrolimus um, is an mTOR inhibitor. So mTOR is downstream of the RAS pathway. And if you inhibit it, then that promotes cell cycle arrest. So cyrolimus, especially systemically, is used in cancer treatment. But in more recent years, it's been used topically in some aspects of dermatology. So this article here is a case series of successes, of course, with Cyrolimus 1% cream, which you can get compounded. Uh, There's specifically a specialty pharmacy called Chemistry RX that can compound it for about 100 bucks, I think, for a 30-gram tube. Hashtag not sponsored, but if you want to check it out, they've been a useful resource. Uh, Call back quickly to an article a couple couple of episodes ago where we talked about topical 15% resorcinol for HS. Um, So Chemistry RX also has a pre-made, like, prescription for that that's reasonably priced. The first patient here was an 18-year-old man. He had a navus sebaceous on the scalp, and he applied this Cyrolimus 1% cream twice a day. And after two months, it was 90% flatter. It's a lot flatter. Then he transitioned to once once weekly application for maintenance, and it's been stable for five years. So it doesn't make it go away, but makes it a lot flatter and more tolerable and could perhaps save someone a surgery. And then the case series includes four other adolescent patients with successful treatment of nevus sebaceous and or epidermal nevi on the scalp, face, and neck. Most of them noticed improvement within one to four months, again, with BID usage. No real side effects except for a little bit of irritation in a couple patients. Some people use some mild topical steroids to control that irritation and were able to continue. They pointed out that one patient developed a tricky lamoma, 
Tricky, tricky. I remember from sitting in Durham Path with Dr. Cloyce Stetson playing Tricky by Run Run DMC. Is that what they are? <laughs> yes, Whenever that's we saw Trichalomoma, it's tricky, tricky. And, you know, we'd spend three minutes enjoying that song until we went back to looking at the case. <laughs> um, and apparently trichalomomas are associated with nevus sebaceous and also involve RAS activating mutations. So should be no surprise that that's where we see them. Um, and that person just ended up having an excision, basically. So they point out that topical sirolimus is not readily absorbed into the skin and has a positive safety profile with no reported systemic adverse effects. They say it is well studied and has been used to treat conditions, including angiofibromas, so especially in tuberous sclerosis. Uh, Serolimus is pretty useful for the angiofibromas people get on their face there. It's been used for lymphatic malformations and also epidermal nevi with features of acanthosis nigricans. And in this case series, it was just epidermal nevi in general. Um, in episode 49, we discussed its use in um, acanthosis nigricans slash carp, kind of a crossover presentation, and it was useful there. We also discussed its use in vascular malformations in general, not just lymphatic malformations in episode 21, though my personal suspicion is that the higher the component of lymphatics, the more useful sirolimus is in any particular vascular malformation. I just prescribed this yesterday to a patient who I think has a nevus sebaceous on the nose, so we'll see if she gets better with sirolimus 1% cream. Very cool. That's probably all the time we've got for today. So thanks to Dr. John Ho for hanging out with us and talking to us about Kiko XP, knowledge in, knowledge out, as well as the future of dermatopathology could be at least partially digital. We learned about medical marijuana and how it can potentially help with itch, especially if you've exhausted a bunch of other options. We learned that PO minoxidil can help for loose antigen syndrome at very small doses. We learned that wildfire smoke probably can make people itchy and make their atopic dermatitis worse. And we learned that topical sirolimus might be an option to not get rid of, but treat nevus sebaceous and epidermal nevi. Thanks so much for hanging out with us today, listeners. And thanks, of course, to our institutions. Thanks to the University of Utah for supporting the podcast. And thanks to Texas Tech for lending us Michelle. Thanks to Ryan Carlisle, medical student and member of Team Dermosphere, who, by the way, is applying to dermatology this year. So if you are in a residency program, please look kindly on his application. He keeps our social media up to date. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can also find us on our website, dermospherepodcast.com, which has our entire archive along with some other goodies. You can also find all of our episodes on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And thanks again to you listeners for hanging out with us today. And we'll see you guys in two weeks. 